Hey guys, today on the Next Brave Thing podcast, I have a friend, Michelle Lynn, joining me. Now, Michelle is not only a friend, but she's actually one of my uh, coaching clients that has been with me for nearly six years. And I thought I have to get Michelle on the podcast because she really embodies what it means to be a wholehearted artist. And I've watched her. She is the sort of person that is hungry to learn and grow and um, I just felt like she's her process would be so encouraging to you especially if you're an artist or a um, someone who's taking their art to a professional level because she has really rumbled with a lot of the challenges uh, that artists go through. So Michelle is a Canadian pianist and entrepreneur who moved to Europe after finishing her studies at the University of Montreal in 2013. She has widely performed across Europe. She is also a lecturer in your art as a business at the Conservatorium Maastricht. In 2020, she co-founded the Fearless Artist Mastermind, a coaching company for classical musicians with Deanna Petrie. She's also the artistic director of Opus 16 Concertin in the Netherlands, which is a chamber music concert series. I'm excited for you guys to listen and make sure you download, subscribe and share this episode with friends. Michelle Lynn, it is so good to have you on the podcast. Um, It's so good to have you. You're coming from the Netherlands today, right? Yes, I am. I'm Canadian and I moved over here nine years ago this month. Nine years. Wow. That's like, okay. I've been in California nearly eight years, I think. So, wow. I'm just thinking like where you were in 2013 versus where I was like (laughs) just moved. So you've had to learn the language and everything. I wish I had learned the language. I can fake very well my Dutch, (laughs) Yeah, but uh, yeah, the Dutch are extremely proficient in English. So I would say most of my days are in English. Wow, that's so cool Like that you've moved there. That's awesome. And then for our audience, we actually met, I think, six years ago. Was it six years ago? Yeah, it would have been 2017 in Redding, California. Yes, and you were attending a leaders conference and we just bumped into each other. And um, and then since then, we've become, become friends, but also... Um, I've done life coaching with you. So yeah, but tell us a bit about that meeting when we met. Well, actually, it's not true that we bumped into each other. I specifically sought you out because I saw the commercial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I found out about BCA, which is the Apple Conservatory of the Arts. And you, we were at the Leaders Advance um, and they ran an advertisement for it during the Leaders Conference. And they said, this is for artists who want to learn how to carry the presence and get away from this identity of how you perform is how you are as a person. Yeah. And I just instantly said, I need to find these people who are searching for freedom in a performing context. Yes. Because at that point in my life, performing was very much wrapped up in my identity of you are bad if you play bad. And mm. so I said, who are these people? I need to find them. And I emailed <laughs> and I said, I'm coming and I need to speak to someone in your team. And they were like, okay, we're doing this uh, open house kind of two hour thing at this yes. time come. And so I ran there as soon as we landed basically. And I was jet lagged and exhausted and I met you. Yeah. And I just, in, in 30 minutes, I poured out my heart to you. <laughs> and I was sobbing and you said to me, you need to get shame out of the central part of your heart. 
Mm. And I was like, okay, okay, great. Tell me what that means. Cause I don't really get that. And then yeah. we started coaching over, um, over that, that next few months. And it was just life changing for me. Wow. That's, I mean, I love hearing your version of the story because like, I just, I mean, it's been so long, I forget. And I, I, you have been such a loyal client of mine and then become a friend. And, um, I think I was one year into being a life coach and I think working with you, it's like got me really excited because I love working with artists and, um, yeah. So, and what I've noticed from your journey is you have really, and like a lot of my clients and my own personal journey, we have this operating system within us and it gets us so far until it kind of is causing us to burn out, crash. And then it's time for a new operating system. And I've seen you go on that journey of really changing your beliefs and everything. So can you take us back to like, what your career was looking like at that time, like where you were, what your perspective was. Yeah, that those years, I just finished my master's degree and then an artist diploma in piano performance at the University of Montreal. And I was looking for next steps. And some people choose to stay in academia and do a doctorate. And some people just kind of jump into the real world. And uh, a few of my colleagues were heading over to Europe for different programs. And I thought, okay, let's try that route. But I didn't recognize how difficult it would be to leave my tribe of, you know, my pianists. I'm very much a a person who needs to belong and know where my, my group is, my safe people. So I had like, you know, the pianists who live on the fifth floor of this specific building. And every day we get up there and we go practice and this is our thing and this is what we do. And so I left that and I also left my culture (laughs) in like in one shot. And suddenly I'm in this brand new place and I had some, some ideas lined up for what to do, but I wasn't in a program. So there was no one telling me, here's what your day is going to look like. Here's what you're going to study. Here's what's important for you. Here's what a good next step would be for you. It was just like, okay, now what? And I felt very much unprepared for the real world by my studies. They didn't really teach you how to navigate things after school. I was still at the point where, my teacher was telling me which fingering to use in a passage, like how to think about a piece, how to play a piece. Like I felt completely unprepared to be an individual uh, artist. I was yeah. very, very much dependent in a, I would say an unhealthy way, dependent on my teacher and the people at school. So it was a huge shock, huge shock to the system. And I was very much feeling lost and stuck and wanting to practice, but not having a clear goal or a clear vision for what, could become. And then I just felt a lot of fear come in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that led to not being motivated to not practicing to, you know, kind of a downward spiral kind of thing. So I was still playing and I was still looking for opportunities and trying to figure out what to do. I started teaching, you know, making income and those things, but it was very much like, this can't be what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. I felt so frustrated. Um, yep. so yeah, yeah. Then coming to, to talk with you about why, why is practicing so hard? What are you telling? What's your self-talk when you're sitting down at your instrument? What's actually going on inside? Learning how to become kind of connected to what was going on inside of me yeah. um, was kind of the first steps to getting out of that, uh, that stuck place. Yeah. And that's so relatable as an artist, as a creative. So um, what did success look like? for your, you know, going through the study and what your conservatory 
sort of modeled to you? How did you perceive success? Yeah, in the classical music world, I think this is starting to change now, but we're talking, you know, 10 years ago. So I think very much there's this idea of either you're the top 1% or you're not good. <laughs> like there's this huge black and white extreme of there's, you know, you get a faculty position and you prove that you're this or you're winning the big competitions and you play all the big halls. And that's what a real quotation mark real musician does. And if you're anything less than that, it's because you weren't good enough. And so there's all of this pressure and stress and striving and trying to prove yourself and, yeah. you know, judgment also like, oh, well, they couldn't make it. So now they're only doing this as a job or, you yeah. know, like looking down on other career paths, because if you're, if you're the best of the best, then you're, then it looks like this. And you had said to me when something about success looks like showing up, and I had no idea what that meant. And that, to be honest, sounded like a cop-out answer to me. I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's because, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's been a whole journey of learning, like, you know, what is success? What do you, what do you feel is um, accomplishing something to you? And what direction do you want to continue to build in? Yeah, that's so good. And to paint a picture about, you mentioned like avoiding, um, sounds like avoiding the piano, sitting down to practice. Can you tell yeah. us what was happening for you back then around practicing yeah so um our our profession is highly critical in the sense that uh if you play for anyone they're going to have something to say for feedback wise it's rare that you play and they start with you know wow you're really great let's work on this it's it tends to be more like this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong you haven't thought about this you didn't try this, you know, your gesture, your fingering, your, the way you touch the piano, or you don't understand the style, or you've missed some big important thing. And how could you not know this? So I think there's like a lot of shame or just overwhelm in playing. And then you go to a different teacher and they have a different method. And then you think, well, did I miss it? What should I have learned it that way? And where's my centeredness and where's my groundedness and learning to trust that voice. And Mm -hmm. I just didn't, I have any kind of inner grounded or trust on my own thoughts about something also because you're still developing as an artist and that takes time. Yes. Um, but yeah, it was just a lot of like, tell me how to play, you know, being spoon fed in school, Yes. you know, play it like this. And I think there's a high aspect of that. Like there, we're being discipled in a sense. We're being trained by a certain teacher of his way of thinking, his way of interpreting things. And that's a really important thing because you're learning technique and you're learning interpretation. But then after you have to find your own voice and I hadn't found mine. So when I sat down, I was just kind of in panic. Like, I don't know how to do this without a teacher. And I really want to be good, but I don't know if I'm good because I don't have someone to tell me that I'm good. So I think it was a lack of self-trust and my own confidence. Yeah. And I think when like, or even our students, they are looking to their leadership to tell them who they are as an artist. Like, right. I mean, th- that's the question I have students ask me, very precious, like sweet faces. They're like, um, do you think I've got what it takes to make it? And I'm like, honey, you're going to be asking that question a long time. Like it's yes. not going to be solved by the founders of the school saying you've got it. It is something that you have to discover within yourself. And um, yeah, because I mean, tell us like like it's a weird tension because we want to respect our teachers because they have like a level of expertise and they're teaching you. 
but like, tell us about the tension of valuing their voice, but finding your own voice. Yeah, I don't think I did until I was forced to. So I remember coming off stage from my final master's recital, right? I played this enormous concerto. I poured my heart into it. I played it well. I got a prize at a really important competition locally. So obviously it was at a high level. And I came off stage and my teacher didn't say anything to me. And now looking back, it's because I should have known that I was good. I should have known that this was an excellent level of playing. Like, it's obvious. But because I was so triggered and like, (gasps) tell me that I'm good enough. So I was like desperate. Like for him to look at me and be like, yes, you're good. You're good. And so he looked at me and he's like, you know, you played well, right? And I was like, no, I just remember feeling frantic for his, like, like you need a drink of water and the person has the water. You're like, please validate me. Like, tell me that I'm enough. And, and for him and his brain, he had no idea that I was in that place because he's like, well, she should know if you had any sense of objectivity, you would be able to hear, but I couldn't hear because I was so much wrapped up in my self-worth as a pianist and desperately wanting to be enough. Yeah. Exactly. That's, I mean, I think we all, I mean, and I think that's what I meant by you need to get the shame out of the core of your being, which is the loudest voice in your soul. It becomes like a God, like this authority voice that says, when you sit down at, to play practice, you are not enough. And so then we subconsciously are trying to protect ourselves from feeling that bad. So we avoid playing the playing or trying because, and so we need to change the narrative, which we can go into a little bit, a bit more about, but um, talking about perfectionism, like how would you define perfectionism? Yeah, it's exactly what you just said. It's for me, perfectionism isn't your house is super clean and everything's in order. And you're on time. That's not me at all. But for me, perfectionism was, I so desperately want to be good. And I'm afraid that I'm not enough. So therefore, I'm going to avoid, therefore, self-sabotaging. Because if you don't practice, you're not going to be good. But then if I don't practice, I don't have to hear that I'm not good. So this way, I get to stay safe and protected in my little bubble of avoidance and denial. And then at the same time, I have this desperate frustration in me because I know that I'm supposed to be doing great things. I've got this call in me, this yes. this drive in me that has never died. And the times that I did think I'm really not cut out for this, uh, I was just feeling sick if I couldn't practice. And I knew it was just such an integral part of me. Like, no, I'm supposed to be doing this and I need to figure out a way to do it in a healthy way where I'm not internally beating myself up every time I sit down or, or getting into these huge panics and just learning to be more objective and not so tied up to the actual practicing of it. Yeah. So what's, what's steps that you took to help get shame out of the center? (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think, I mean, for sure, working with you was the first step. And I, I think it's becoming aware of how much pressure you're putting on things that don't mean what we think they mean in our heads. Yeah. You know, if I sit down to practice, it has nothing to do with the thousands of hours that I've put into my instrument. Mm. How I play on one specific day doesn't indicate how I am completely as an artist, but we just, we have, sometimes have this tunnel vision where it's like, I need to show in this one moment, everything that I've ever done to prove that I'm good. And if I can't, well, then it's just because you suck. And we have, I think it's getting rid of these extremes. I was in these huge black and white, like you're either all or you're nothing. And mm. I've learned how to find the gray areas. 
So yes. the, the, the sitting and being gentle and, and telling myself, no, it doesn't mean this drastic end of the world thing that you think it does. You're giving it a meaning that it doesn't have in your head because of fear. So I think the first step is becoming self-aware of what you're actually labeling things. And then it's unlabeling or relabeling and saying, actually, that's incorrect. And let's find a healthier way to it. So reframing is extremely crucial, I think. Yes, I know, because our subconscious narrative is always in extremes. So it's like you're like you just said, logically, you're just sitting in a room. No one is listening to you. No one is judging you. And very logically, it's really low stakes, but your subconscious believes you are being heavily criticized. You have to get it perfect and don't even bother trying. Like if not, and so I love that you said like, it's about reframing what's happening internally. I think like, yeah, being able to voice the shame or talk about it just liberates you because then it's outside of your body. (laughs) Like, and someone else can say to you, like, let's change the narrative here. Right. And you had once said to me, you know, I thought my big problem was with practicing. And you said, you don't have a problem with practicing. You don't hate practicing. You hate what you tell yourself when you're practicing. And that was huge for me because then it's coming down to, okay, what am I actually saying to myself when I am playing? There's a trend right now going on Instagram and it's, uh, it's thoughts that I have while playing from pianists. And so they're talking about, you know, voice your right hand, uh, more left hand. Oh, think about the tempo, uh, rhythm here was sloppy, things like that. And I watched a couple of my friends do it and I thought, wow, they're really listening and they're objective and there's nothing about themselves in this. Whereas my, and I could never do this trend. I thought about doing it, but my inner talk was, why are you starting this so late? What would so-and-so say? If this person heard you play, they would say you suck. Why didn't you do this sooner? Why isn't this working? You should have practiced more. I mean, it's just this constant narration of berating myself. (laughs) And I remember to my friend, is that really what you think about when you practice? You're so nice to yourself. And he said, well, that's just how I've learned to work. And I thought, okay, like I got to get, I got to get better at this. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, so some people are wired like their internal dialogue. They just don't think like that. It's so fascinating to me. Mine is more similar to yours. (laughs) Um, so, so it, it, it is an intention and I love like you're actually putting your focus on something else, like, you know, on the actual music, on the work, which, um, which takes it off you because art is never supposed to be about us anyway. Right. <laughs> it's supposed to be right. about giving. Um, and yeah. So know that's what it is when I was little, I got praise and affirmation from being good at something. So therefore you learn that when I do well, I am loved. I am shown love. I get told that I'm good. I get told that I'm, I'm important. I get prizes. I get money. I win every single thing I sign up for. Look at me. This is how I feel important. So therefore my art became this way of feeling of this love and acceptance. And it, that's how I think artists can get so entangled with identity and performance. Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. That's so true. So do you feel like, yeah. So where did you, um, talking about perfectionism, like where did it all begin for you? Do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I was, 
I guess, raised in a, a pretty strict household where there wasn't a lot of like wiggle room and um, a lot of, yeah, you are disciplined and you are showing up and you do your work and not a lot of uh, maybe compliments were seen as being um, superfluous and not necessary. And um, yeah, but you should just know and never mind, get on with the work kind of thing. And I think this comes from like, you know, where I'm from, the prairies, farmers work hard, you know, sun up to sundown, you're pushing, pushing, you're driven. And, you know, if your friend is stuck at three in the morning in a ditch, you're going to get in the car and you're going to be there in 10 minutes because that's what we do for each other. And, and that's so beautiful, but it, and, and I really love the hard work ethic, but yeah. I'm also an extremely sensitive person and, you know, for better or for worse, I can get pretty crushed <laughs> pretty easily by, by words or lack of affirmation. And I think my, my love language is words of affirmation. So yeah. With the lack of that, I think I learned to just be really hard on myself. And then moving to Montreal to study uh, at a university, previous to that, I was really, you know, big fish, small pond. Like anything that I was doing, I was in the top and it was quite easy for me. I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I think practicing, I always really loved until I went to university. And then they were like, your technique is wrong and we have to redo all of this. And so suddenly it was like, (gasps) I'm not good enough instead of, okay, yeah, let's fix how I touch the piano. (laughs) Mm. Like I just didn't didn't know how to separate those two things. And I think there's also a lot of toxicity in music school where the teacher kind of becomes this cult leader and everyone is kind of worshiping the teacher. And, you know, we follow him around and we, we spend time with them outside of school. And, you know, there's story after story of the teachers, like the students revolve around the teacher and kind of worship this person. And, I only realized how unhealthy that was after I'd left and then yeah. kind of could see the exterior like, Oh, this is super unhealthy. And I think it happens in a lot of music schools, maybe other yeah. artists. Oh, schools. it's an artist thing. It's this idolization and pedestal yeah. thing. Yeah. And it's so like perfectionism is praised. It's admired. And of course, yeah. like our little hearts, when we're really honest with ourselves, we want to be admired. We want to feel significant. And so you look to the shiniest person in your school or in your um, profession world. Um, and, and you look at like, well, I can only be admired and good if I'm at that level. And then it becomes this impossible target which you feel unfulfilled by and it's a hamster wheel. (laughs) And I mean, it's, I think even just you sharing that we, we can go into, it takes time to untangle from that belief system from more of a fixed mindset into a growth mindset, which I've seen you like so beautifully wrestle with and go after. And um, we have to learn and you've said this to go from it being perfect to being human in process. So tell us about process, what that's looked like. Process has been so interesting. It's, I think one of my key words has been gentle and learning to speak with gentleness to myself and yes. just taking off all of this pressure. You know, how I think that was one of the key phrases that I heard a few years ago, just take the pressure off and how, you know, making everything really high stakes as you would share with me that, you know, any opportunity that I had was like make or break or any, any performance was like, and now it's this. And if it doesn't go well, then it's all over. And you've just proven that you weren't cut out for this. And it's always these, like you're at this, this isolated event and you attach all of this meaning to it that 
shouldn't yeah. have. Um, Sheryl Sandberg describes in her book, Lean In, the concept of a building a career isn't a ladder. It's like a jungle gym and you swing from like one thing to another and you kind of like grab on and then you look at where you are and you're like, okay, what can I grab next? And we think it just has to be this steady, like build, but that, that really helped me. Okay. What's, what's the next thing I can do and grow and then giving myself some feedback, like just reflecting feedback, what went well, what went less well, what did I learn? What can I do differently? Those are four questions I ask myself at the end of every performance now. And I've, I've just begun to learn to celebrate. I always scoffed at people saying like step-by-step. I was like, yeah, that's just because you're not good enough to like be this, right? So you have to make excuses for your lack of talent or whatever. Um, But anything that grows goes through phases. And I find that musicians don't allow ourselves to go through phases. And we definitely don't let other people see us in these phases because we have attached so much self-worth to how you play. So I have to prove that I'm good to you so that you acknowledge that I'm on your level. Um, so I had to undo a lot of that. (laughs) Yeah. And it was never, process was never modeled to you because the thing that was celebrated was perfection. It's like your, uh, your instructors, they, they were put on pedestals. So it's like, you never got to see their humanity. I'm sure. Like they shielded you from that. Exactly. When you go to your lesson and you play, there's still a thousand things wrong. So you're like, I mean, it can be inspiring or it can be very discouraging because you're like, okay, at what point is this going to be good? And when am I going to get it? And does this mean that there's something wrong with me that I still don't understand? Or, or you didn't have self-awareness about something that the teacher deems is very important. So then you kind of start questioning your whole reality. Like, how did you miss? I remember this one time I played a Beethoven sonata and my pulse was completely out of order. And he was like, how did you not hear this? And I didn't take that question and put it in the category of he's addressing my rhythm right now and I need to fix my rhythm. I heard it as what is wrong with you that you would not recognize that the rhythm of this Beethoven movement is integral to the performance of it. So you are dumb. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I took that, that comment and I just made it about me personally. And that's something I think I've always struggled with taking things too personally. Mm, yeah. And even like looking at your upbringing, like I'm sure that like wouldn't be as triggering if you were going into a nine to five job where you, there isn't risk involved too much. It's pretty safe job. Whereas you're choosing to be a performer, which is risking all the time. And when we risk all of our crap comes up, (laughs) like all of our stuff, all of our um, trauma or fears, and you're doing that all the time you're being seen which opens you up to criticism more than the average person I think that's why I think artists are the bravest of them all (laughs) and we talked so much about the Theodore Roosevelt quote like the man in the arena is the one getting his butt kicked because he's being brave and it's better to be you know on your face but you're brave than to be sitting in the cheap calling out nasty comments you know the trolls on YouTube videos Yeah. It's like, well, I would rather be in the center. And actually what you're saying is such a good point because, um, being on social media is very important part of our careers now these days. And I started uh, two years ago now, the killing perfectionism in classical challenge. Mm -hmm. And that was specifically because I know so many, you know, I, I learned the importance of posting my playing, I guess a few years ago, I got into the habit of it and it opened up so many opportunities for me 
in terms of getting more work, concerts, performances. And I thought one night I was posting a little clip of a Chopin nocturne and I thought, I know so many musicians who would not post themselves playing because of essentially it boils down to fear, but fear of being labeled as a B-level player, fear of someone hearing them practicing and not in a performance setting. Um, I've spoken to singers who said our teachers told us never let yourself be heard when you're not at your top level, because then you'll be labeled and, you know, people won't hire you. And um, I thought this is so, and, and then just fear of, yeah, what are people going to think? It essentially comes down to that. Um, so I created this challenge. It was 10 days long. And the premise was uh, you had five takes max and you had to post up to a minute of your playing. And the response was overwhelming. We had, I think, 75 people joined immediately. Yeah. And th- I think what made it so successful was, A, it's a problem that many, many people struggle with. Um, B, doing it in a supportive environment. You know, I spent, I think I was on my phone 24 hours a day for that week. Just in, like I commented on every single person who did it and, you know, way yeah. to go. Good for you showing up. Like this is process. Yeah. And then the revelations people were getting, because first of all, you just learn to hit this speed bump of fear over and over and over. And then you become immune to it. You're like, yeah. you know what? I'm going to hit post. Here I am. It's 30 seconds. And I try to tell people, remember, <laughs> on social media, people are there to usually numb out and scroll or entertainment purposes. And they're not actually sitting there analyzing your interpretation of whatever piece right. you're playing. They're probably just going to listen to five seconds and keep going. So for us, it's just like, oh, I'm being seen by the world. And for them, they're like, yeah, okay. Like skip, yeah. skip, 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 skip. Right? So uh, people were like, oh, this is so freeing because then I finally got over this fear. And, you know, some, some people were sharing that they would do 48 takes and then listen back and still refuse to post because it still wasn't good enough. So just helping people overcome that. And um, yeah, it was such a beautiful response to see people start to learn to embrace this process. Five takes, post, keep going. It's about doing the work. It's about showing up. It's about being seen. Yeah. And I love that because it's kind of the purpose of this podcast is your next brave thing. And it's kind of like you instinctively found your next brave thing of posting. And now it sounds like it, like the sting of or the fear of posting really isn't there anymore. Would you say that has been a big result from doing something like that? Yeah, I think the community that I've managed to create has been so beautiful and people sharing their vulnerability sharing, being open about these things. And then also for myself, I think it just comes down to if you're consistent about it or not, because I do feel that if I haven't posted in a while, my playing, the, the old thoughts will come back. So if you're in the habit of it, and that's what the challenge addresses so beautifully because it's 10 days long. So you become immune by the end of those 10 days. And then I've had people tell me, you know, after the challenge, I just couldn't do it anymore. I thought, why? We created this artificial environment with these fake rules yeah. that I came up with myself. And now yeah. you're telling me you can't do it because of some limiting belief that you invented in your head. You know, yeah. it's crazy how we make these rules mm-hmm. for ourselves and that we therefore can't just do it. Um, but yeah, yeah. so I, I try to be just regularly posting because I, yeah. otherwise I find myself shrinking back into that small version of myself where it's like, yes. oh no, what is so-and-so going to think? And, um, I always tell people there's, you know, think of the, the, the people in your mind that you think I can't post it because of what that person will think about my playing. Cause I had two pianists in mind whenever I was going to post something like two, two monster pianists that I admire so much who are kind of in my community. And I was like, Oh no, like, I don't want her to hear me because she's like, she's amazing. And you know, it just felt, I didn't want to be judged by her. And then came the day when I posted something 
and I was a little bit vulnerable about something I was struggling with. And she left this beautiful comment on my post about, you know, her thoughts about what I shared and then a compliment about my playing. And then I read this thing and I thought I created an invented narrative and therefore chose to act according to that narrative of this girl's going to judge me. And in fact, it was completely untrue. She didn't judge me. She encouraged me. Mm -hmm. And how many more times I limited myself because I created this false idea in my head of what someone was thinking about me. Yeah. So that's why, you know, in our, we have a coaching company, the fearless artist mastermind, and we drill our clients, like look for the evidence of these beliefs that you think you have of the, all these people who are going to judge you. Is it true? Would they actually, or are you just looking for a way to keep hiding and not sharing what Mm -hmm. you have with the world, your art? Yeah, that's so good. And I think like when we first met, well, because you were, um, getting used to the culture and you were trying to find your way as an artist, like so many people who spend thousands of dollars of their education and then they come out with maybe their masters or whatever. And then it's like, what do I do now? Like, and I, what I have loved being a witness, a witness to your journey is seeing you like, discover a block, but then really learn how to unblock it. And the block is usually a belief system. And then you've created so much momentum, which has created so many opportunities and um, even the mastermind group, which I'd love you to share about, but tell us. So we've talked a little bit about what success looked like back then. How have you redefined success now? Yeah, that's a good point. I think about this kind of consistently. I think success now means I first of all I think success is scalable it's not this destination point that one day you've arrived and like you wake up and you're successful so I would say I'm successful now and Mm -hmm. I would also say I've got some really big goals and dreams that I want to accomplish next year to have to be more successful and and not for me to become more important because I think I've managed to now separate those two things yeah but I think when I can see that my work is making an impact or a contribution when yeah. I can see that being a contribution, that's when I'm successful. Yes. And that's, that's so important to me. I screenshot messages from people who have been impacted by our work at the fearless artist who say, thank you for addressing this or this, you know, we do feedback after our masterminds and someone just wrote and said, my mind was tremendously opened by the opportunities available to artists having done your mastermind. So it's like, Thanks for telling me that. I'm going to put that in my love pocket. I'm going to remind myself of that when I wake up in the morning that I've got a voice and people need to hear it because it's making a difference. That's success. And yes. that's when it inspired me to keep going. And yes. and then it's not about me. It's about what's the impact that I'm making in the world? What's the difference that I'm seeing? How am I affecting people to step more into their fullness? And mm. and that's been really exciting because then success isn't about you. It's about yeah. the contribution you're making. I love that. And it just like even watching your self-talk change because when we're so fueled with judgment, like we're going to put ourselves in a box and we're not going to, we're just limiting like our options and all of that. And as you've changed your belief system, it's like you've opened up so many opportunities and you've made your own career to the point where don't you lecture on this now? Like at um, a university, like, yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. I teach your art as a business. Yeah. That was just the most beautiful process. The job opened up in March and 
I had two people write me and they said, this job description is you. Wow. <laughs> so so yeah. I had to, the, the staff, now they're my colleagues and share with them my heart and vision. And it really just lined up with what the, they want to go in and, and just seeing, being able to have the opportunity to impact students 10 years earlier is so great because right now our clientele is basically, you know, my age or, you know, young professionals having finished their studies. And now I get to go straight to them when they're still in their young minds where they think that all they have to do is be really good at their instrument. And then there's going to be a career waiting for them. I'm like, listen, let's talk about branding and marketing and social media and pitching yourself. And then, oh, by the way, there's like this whole emotional health thing of rejection and criticism and confidence. And, you know, I have a really great life coach you can have. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh my gosh. Like, it's so full circle. It's so powerful. I love it so much. And so what would you like, cause we kind of brushed over self-talk and cause I know like a lot of people, when I talk on self-compassion, they're like, yeah, good. That's nice. <laughs> like, what the heck are you? Yeah, it like, feels like it's, a cop out to a perfectionist. Yeah. Yes. Like let's unpack that because, um, a lot of people and to the listeners, they can go back and listen to um, different podcasts I've done on self-compassion and what it is. And you can Google it, find TED Talks on self-compassion. Um, but what has been your journey with learning your self-talk, how to be gentle, like you use the word gentle? Um, what's that looks like? Uh, it's, it's a lot of little attempts to undo this huge black knot, I would say, you know, it's just, just very small steps of, again, becoming aware of what you're actually telling yourself, becoming aware of your internal world, um, your feelings. If you are having a lot of anxiety, asking yourself, you know, what am I picking up on? What am I afraid of? What lie do I believe right now? Um, is it true? You know, kind of starting to there's like a little jury inside of you and you can start to say, hang on, like we have a thought now, you know, step number one, you are not your thought. Mm-hmm. Step number two, is it a good thought? Is it true? Is it a hundred percent true? Is there a way that you can, and even if it is true, is it kind, you know, because learning that, I, I think the reason I avoided self-compassion for so many years was because it, it, again, it feels like a cop-out. It feels like you're doing the little pat on the head. Like, don't worry, little girl, you're going to be fine. And it's like, no, <laughs> I yeah. have to be amazing. And I have to be this and I have to be, you know? Yeah. And so I didn't, I didn't want to go anywhere near that little cop-out. Like you're enough as you are, that kind of fake stuff. Mm-hmm. It just felt really, I don't know how to describe it, but, um, and then learning that actually you'll get the result you want faster. If you can talk to yourself like this, so you don't, you don't lose the excellence. You don't lose the, you know, striving to be the best version of yourself, which I think I was afraid of losing because if you say that you're enough, then that means you don't have to work hard because it's good. Right. Yeah. And that, so that's also not true. So I, I think it was just a lot of questioning what I believed and finding the the facts and then going from there. And then, yeah, again, gentle, gentle talk, you know, I speak quickly, I can be direct and that's all because internally again, like how I uh, talk to myself when I'm practicing, it's like, whoa, I think we can probably say that in a more healthy way, or I can feel myself feeling hurt by these thoughts. So let's say it in a way that can help me. Yeah. Um, fully, fully being on your own side and learning Mm -hmm. what helps you. Yeah. And then of course, like my best friend is Deanna and she's the most compassionate person I know. So I've learned to take her voice 
and yes. say in my own head, how would she phrase this? Mm. Um, that I can treat myself like that. That is such an excellent point because, um, yeah, sometimes because of the extremes we make up about ideas of like, well, if you're compassionate, then you're being passive. A lot of us have seen the people that are nice tend to be more passive. So we're like, I don't want to give up. I don't want to settle. Like if, if you're telling me to like be nice to myself, you're telling me to like settle and give up. Like that's not going to help me, but it's powerful. Like when you do have a friend like Deanna or like you have coaches or people in your life where you're like, Oh, you're really kind, but you're telling me to do better from a really kind place. Like that's actually what real compassion is. Um, yeah. And it's compassion. The word compate, the first part of compassion, um, the Latin word actually means to take out of. So it really does have a power to take us out of our spiral and into a clear thinking zone. There's even research all around getting your head into clear thinking, because that's what you need to be doing when you're doing brave things. And when you're yeah, sitting down to practice for those things. So super powerful. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, clear thinking also for me means separating the emotion from it, taking off yes. the emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think the emotion comes from A, we're artists. So we, we yeah. are sensitive and very emotional and just so desperately wanting to do it well that it, yeah. you, add, you add on all this weight that it doesn't need and can't support. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, Um, we need little resets within ourselves because there are moments where we, where if we're honest with ourselves, we didn't try hard or we avoided or, you know, and love looks like being truthful, but it also means like, okay, I'm going to forgive you. We're going to reset and you're going to do better now, but you don't carry the shame. It's like a calling higher, um, and I, I think, was literally going to say that exact thing that yes. the way you're describing is calling someone to a greater version of themselves, calling them upwards instead of saying, yes. you're not enough. You should have been this. It's no, look what you can become. Let's yes. go this way. Yes. Yes. And um, yeah, that's so important. And that's so good. I want to talk about a quote that you posted that leapt off the Instagram story (laughs) and I'm going to read it for everyone. And then I want to hear what this quote means to you. So it says, um, imposter syndrome sounds like, I don't know what I'm doing. It's only a matter of time until everyone finds out growth mindset says, I don't know what I'm doing yet. It's only a matter of time until I figure it out. The highest form of self-confidence is believing in your ability to learn. Why does that quote resonate with you? Isn't that just so beautiful? Because there's so much possibility in the second sentence. Yes. As opposed to the dead end sound of the first one. Yes. There's so much deep meaning attached to like, what kind of person are you? If you think one of those two thoughts. So the first person, you don't believe that there's something beyond this moment. You think you're stuck. You think that you're not enough. You're discouraged. You're in this kind of negative space. And the second one is look at all these like, you know, seeds of growth, this opportunity, this potential. 
Um, look at the past and how you've already grown. Look at the people around you who are calling you forward into this. And there's excitement there. There's possibility there. There's self-trust there. And we think, you know, it's such a, it's, it's a huge shift. It doesn't sound like it is, but it's really how you see the world if you're looking outward or inward, I think. Yeah. yeah. There's so much potential there that I just found it so inspiring. Yeah. And artists really do struggle with imposter syndrome. It's a very, um, are they going to find out I didn't practice? Am I going to be naked and exposed? And another actual industry is really the medical fields struggle with imposter syndrome because they're like, what if someone dies on my watch and I, some, everyone's going to find out that I wasn't educated enough. And it's a real thing around like imposter syndrome is really connected to shame um, yeah. which, which is like, so de- from a defeated place or a, like you have to forever prove that my goodness, I love this idea of being a learner. Like, you know, it's so powerful. Yeah. Um, luckily in our profession, you know, the joke is always no one dies if you hit a wrong note on stage. Um, but it feels but like it. It, <laughs> it feels like it. And it doesn't help that our community has created this environment of mm. there's so much pressure if you hit a wrong note. Like, yeah. Like the medical community does. I mean, there was a recent story in, in somewhere in the States where a nurse administered the wrong medication and then she was fired from her job. And, and they were saying, you're putting so much pressure. Like nurses can never make an yeah. error or yeah. admit that they've made an error because you've taught yes. people now. If you screw up, then go hide and cover yes. it up. Yes. And I love what you said about love. Love means that you're honest and mm-hmm. that you look for the possibility and that your your self-worth is never called into question yeah. if you're loved. Yeah, that's so good. And I think, well, it's coming back to common humanity, which is all of us are humans and we even as leaders um, in different environments or work. And I I understand there's a professionalism, obviously. And um, there's a way of, you know, like obviously an appropriate amount of transparency. But um, I think that having this pedestal world has set us all up for like fail, like because we're never going to be able to meet that. And I've heard it said that like, um, perfectionism and authenticity live on two different islands because perfectionism mm-hmm. is like, you have to be your bulletproof self. Whereas authenticity is like, Oh, I'm going to be a human and I'm going to be still loved in my weakness, you know? And it's, yeah. 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 I actually listened to, um, the interview that you did with your mom, which was oh, so yeah. beautiful. And oh, I think thanks. like, Love your mom. Yeah. <laughs> and she was saying about um, how being messy is part of being human and how mm-hmm. we don't want to show the mess because, because yeah. then we might show that we're not perfect. And yes. but being human is, is showing that authenticity. And I would much rather be authentic on stage and be able to communicate something to my audience mm. than to be no, no perfect. But I, I wasn't being fully myself because I was so yes. stressed or under this pressure or just trying to earn approval by playing for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, it's so crazy because we have this desire to do something that's groundbreaking. We actually want to be innovators. We want to be um, the best at something or the most I don't know, like we're looking for the next greatest song. We're looking for the next greatest piece of art. 
And the thing is, you can't discover that through perfectionism. You only discover that through humanity and your authenticity. And I love like watching your journey because there is no one like Michelle Lim. Like there is no one out there like that. And you fully stepped inside your skin in some ways, like, because, which has been the most beautiful thing, which to me is what me it means to be wholehearted is to really step inside yourself and find yourself and be at peace with yourself. And then from that place, you do birth so much beautiful creativity, which you have like, and it's so beautiful to watch the fruit of your journey. It's so cool. Thank you. Yes. So, um, in sort of wrapping up our time, you've just, uh, you just speak so beautifully to this topic with so much authority because you're in the trenches, <laughs> you're doing it. Uh, you're doing the brave journey. Um, to sort of like oh. summarize, like if, you know, I mean, I already know listeners who listen to my podcast and, and have clients obviously that struggle with perfectionism. What kind of, um, in a nutshell, from what we've talked about, what kind of tips would you give them to start moving away from that? Yeah. Um, I think objectivity is crucial. Yes. So first that you can step away from the highly emotional situation of you attaching your self-worth to your performance. And uh, one recent assignment that I gave at my at, at the conservatorium, uh, we did a communications elective and I had them uh, video record themselves presenting on stage and then do a self-evaluation um, based on the video, based on the audio, and then re-record. And it was incredible at the, the shift between video A and video B and how much uh, improvement there was between the two. And it was very much objective. They could see, oh, I'm wagging my head in this weird way when I talk, or I'm monotone, or I'm shuffling my feet, or my content was boring, you know. And so for me as the professor, teacher, I didn't have to say to them what was wrong. They could instantly see it. So if you can apply that analogy to, you know, where am I getting stuck and what is actually happening? And if I took two steps back, could I maybe see what's going on from a different shift, then I think you can quickly see where the problem is. Yeah. Because sometimes there's just this big, like I described already, a big black knot in your head or your heart and you mm. don't understand uh, where to even start. Mm. And then um, I read a book that just shifted so much. It's The Art of Possibility from Ben Zander and Rosamund Zander, his, his wife, and uh, just talking about the importance of reframing and looking for possibilities, looking for opportunities and not getting stuck in this, dead end thinking or these negative spirals and not attaching all of this weight to something. So learn, learning to assess what's going on internally and then asking questions, asking a lot of questions, writing down things that you're saying to yourself, talking about it with a friend saying like, Hey, when I practice, I, I feel all this pressure. Like, how do you deal with this? I think being open and willing to be, have people speak into your life is crucial because yeah. when we are isolated, we get very much stuck and twisted in our own thoughts and thoughts, distortions. Um, actually, I'm doing um, Noom right now, this uh, oh, yeah. uh, app. And yeah. they, you know, there's a lot of good and bad about it. But what I really love is they talk about thought distortions. And yes. they say, things like, do you feel like you'll never be able to change? And they're like, they're helping you recognize these thoughts that we've just taken as facts. And they're not. Um, 
Mm. And then another thing is um, there's a fountain in Geneva and it's in Lake Geneva and all of the water from the city is uh, piped towards this lake. And then at this one specific spot, they took off the blockage and the jet shoots up, I don't know how many hundreds of meters in the air. And it's a very famous landmark of Geneva. And one time when I was taking some time away from piano, I had this impression come into my 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 heart so strongly. And it, it was take the pressure off and then you shoot up. You have, because all of this is in you, this potential is energy yes. is in you. And when you take off the blockage, it can go somewhere. So oh, cool. it's like, okay, how do I take the pressure off? You know, maybe this concert isn't the end of the world. And maybe there is another side to this thing that I'm making the make or break of my career. Maybe there's a day after and I'm going to look back and say, okay, what did I learn and what can I take going forward? Um, so not, not attributing emotion and weight to situations and yeah, yeah. letting other people talk to you and airing out what you're thinking and just starting there. And then, and then you know, tracking, journaling helps, just making sure you are aware of process. Yeah. Cause then you can say, okay, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was. And I'm celebrating mm-hmm. that. I'm celebrating and I'm making steps because I'm going to get there. Yes. That's so powerful. You've mentioned a couple of books. Um, what are some, uh, other books that have been really helpful for you that we can share? Rising strong, Brene Brown. Yes. Change my life. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, specifically related to perfectionism. I already said uh, The Art of Possibility. Um, and then uh, The War of Art from Stephen yes. Pressfield. Yes. Um, Big Magic, Elizabeth Gilbert. There's one quote I want to share from that book that just yes. was so helpful because I just recorded an album um, of my own original songs. And that was the whole other you know process of putting yourself out there and being seen and so writing lyrics Love it. and stuff. And she says in the, in the thing, you know, when you're so worried about what other people think of you, at the end of the day, you can tell them, you know what, go make your own expletive art. Yeah. Like, if you want to criticize me, just go make your own art. This art's right. for me. And this art is for my people. And this, there is a group of people in the world who actually care about my songs. And it's not everyone. And it doesn't have to be everyone. Because I'm going to find my fans and my people who need to hear this. And that's enough. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't need to have 7 billion people adore our art. We just need yes. to find the people that meant for, and that's good. We're going to keep going. So that helped me so much. I was like, yes, I was, I was cheering, you know? Yeah. Um, the last one of course is, uh, the artist way, Julia Cameron. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's another great one. I know. I think cause we have a lot of fantasy attached to our art that we're like, this is going to create thousands of sales and millions I'm gonna like be amazing and then it's like we have these really big explosive outcome ideas but we have to just learn to enjoy the process and surrender the results like because that's so out of control and obviously we want to dream and build something wonderful there's nothing wrong with having dreams like that but then when they start pressurizing you, that's when it's like, oh, these thoughts aren't serving me anymore. So it's so good. Yeah. And it can be so limiting because we dream according to what we know is possible. Yes. But actually, you know, if you look at how, for example, TikTok has changed the world for artists, yes. like you can blow up and be seen by someone who can open a door for you that you didn't even think was possible. So mm-hmm. When we only allow ourselves to see certain things or it has to look like this, you're actually limiting yourself from so much possibility. Yeah, so true. 
I know. And it's so, if anything, that's when wonder comes in because you're like, anything could happen. Like anything can come from anywhere. And that's when you step away from judgment and step into wonder, you know? So I love it. Um, You're so inspiring. I love this. And you have been a client that is so takes everything that we talk about and then you go implement it and then you go do your next brave thing. You're one of the bravest people I know. And, but what does bravery look like for you now? Like now that you've, you know, gained so much traction in your career and um, yeah. What does bravery look like for you? What's your next brave thing? Um, I think on a, practical level being brave looks like being consistent yes um because it's a little bit like what I shared about the perfectionism challenge it's very easy when you you know I talk on my stories almost daily sometimes I get feedback positive feedback sometimes I don't get any feedback so it's like okay then when you don't get any feedback you think oh no everyone thinks I'm so stupid for being on my social media all the time or they think that I this or I think I'm this I'm like whoa 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 is that true I don't know if that's true because no one told me what they're thinking yeah. So probably I should just focus on what I can control, which is showing up. And then mm-hmm. we're coming back to what you told me success is showing up and kind of letting the chips fall where they're going to. But my job is to consistently put out my message and my work and not worry about how it's being received. Yes. Cause I can't control that. But as yeah. someone who desperately wants to be like loved and approved by my tribe and right. being told that I'm at the level, then that's a fear that I can fall into. So yeah. when I notice that I haven't been posting, it's usually because I'm afraid of what people are thinking about me. So yeah. that on a practical level is being brave. And then the second biggest thing is um, with this album coming out, I wrote a lot of songs that are raw and about process and healing and grief and pain. And um, one of the songs, the chorus is, um, let me be real. Let me be seen. All of these broken up pieces in me belong to you. Um And so it's just kind of acknowledging like we're in process, we're in mess, but it's enough. And I'm going to take Mm -hmm. all of these pieces and I'm going to put them together and keep moving forwards and, and let myself be seen. And I think that takes a lot, (laughs) but it's, it's worth it. Yes. It's so good. But if you, if you are kind to yourself, you always have a soft place to land. So it's worth it. It's so good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been such a delight to have you. I'm thrilled and honored to be here. Thank you.